Hi and welcome to this week's episode on Amplify. My name is Sanchi Singh and thanks so much for tuning in. So this week I'm looking at a commercially successful business that has in the past 15 years expanded across all of Europe and the US and has had sustainability at its core since day 1. We've touched upon the topic of achieving scale when a business is 100% sustainable in some of the previous episodes and Today I wanted to challenge the assumption that being ethical and sustainable means staying small. It is possible to be financially viable and ethically sound and in fact extremely important in these times for businesses to emulate. Building a just and equitable future of work requires thinking big and also looking at companies who are paving the way for others because as they say you can't be what you can't see. Week's episode on Amplify, where I am in conversation with Choco Evangelist Unza Van Zanten. Unza works at Tony's Choco Lonely, which is on a huge mission to end modern slavery and exploitation in the cocoa industry, and are one of the leading industry examples of a chocolate giant that are making bars both delicious and responsible. So, hi Unza, and thank you so much for being on my episode. Thanks for having me. So I think first things first what or who is a choco evangelist like can you just tell <laughs> what it is that you do <laughs> Yeah but we don't take ourselves that seriously we take our our business and our mission very seriously so we have these weird job titles mm-hmm. so my name is the evangelist and that entails that I would tend to travel the globe to spread the story of Tony's of uh, Coco of what we do and mostly why we even do the things that we do So uh, as Tony's we don't do we don't spend a cent on paid media. So it's a, a part of my job to just get awareness going amongst consumers amongst organizations really spread the message of uh, of what we're doing. Right. So that that sounds like a great job. That sounds like a dream job and I mean even the I image I say I have the best job in the world. Yeah, I mean even the image itself conjures up like pictures of you going around like a Santa, you know, just throwing chocolates at people <laughs> like here you go, slave free chocolate for all. I tend to go that tends to be chocolate run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. But I think just for in case people who may not be in the know, can you just contextualize some of the issues that the cocoa industry is facing i mean obviously modern slavery and exploitation is one of them but there's also mass deforestation and there's all of these issues of the environmental footprint because of the scale at which cocoa farming happens so can you just talk yes. about some of those issues in the supply chain yes but interrupt me uh, whenever you want to eh? because my nutshell tends to grow by the minute when i no, start telling fine. this story that's so we're happy if your cocoa pod grows into the tree <laughs> cool so in a sense there's a very bitter reality to the sweet story of chocolate that unfortunately still very few people know about because there is indeed a large problem with illegal and forced child labor in the cocoa industry mostly due to the fact that the farmers these cocoa farmers simply don't earn a proper living income from their crop it's a systemic problem it's a it's a, a, a long existing systemic problem which isn't easy to change either but in a sense it comes down that uh, we believe that these farmers should earn at least get a living income reference price for their produce so there then they can evolve out of this this vicious spiral that they tend to be caught up in this system that they tend to be caught up in so we try to 
break that cycle and uh, uh, give these farmers a proper wage for the cocoa beans that they deliver to us. We spread awareness amongst consumers about the reality in the cocoa industry. But we also want to show the rest of the chocolate industry that chocolate can be made in a different way, in a more sustainable way, in a more social way, in our opinion, simply in a better way. Really by leading by example. So show them that it can be done and that it is scalable. I mean, five or 10 years ago, people would say, yeah, this is a small philanthropic initiative somewhere in Amsterdam. Well, we're now available almost across the globe. And Everywhere. still we managed to roll out the system. So we think it's a lame argument and, and uh, that, that they hide behind for some. This, there's a problem that consists of the fact we work mostly with cocoa farmers or we only work with cocoa farmers in Ghana and Ivory Coast. And why Ghana and Ivory Coast? The majority, more than 60% of all cocoa beans in the world come from Western Africa, of which Ghana and Ivory Coast are the biggest producers. So there's also where the problem of this forced and illegal child labor is the biggest. So we want to solve the problem where the problem exists. There's, according to the latest figures, more than 30,000 children subject to something that can be considered modern slavery. And we think that's ridiculous for a product that nobody actually needs, right? Chocolate. I mean, it's something we crave for and we love it, but nobody actually physically needs it. So there shouldn't be a part in the value chain where chocolate isn't a treat for everybody in that value chain. It should be a treat from the person that gets the chocolate, the person that gives the chocolate, but also the person that grows the cocoa beans for that chocolate. So that's our opinion, and we tried to change that system from within as a commercial chocolate company, simply by launching the most delicious recipes of chocolate bars that go hand in hand with telling the story of the cocoa industry. So people can actually make a difference, change the world around them by, well, thinking about their their purchasing behavior. Let me put it like that. Yeah, and I think I think there was something really interesting there, what you said, when it terms of how. Tony's Chocolate Only is scalable and it certainly proved that in the last, I think, 12, 13, 14 years that you guys have been yeah. around. So if you could just talk about how Tony's Chocolate Only came to be and, and specifically yeah. about yeah. the decision to be a, a for-profit enterprise and, and as opposed yeah. to, you know, like an advocacy group or an NGO or, or, or social movement. Yeah. So we were launched uh, to be exact 15 years ago uh, right. by a couple of Dutch journalists that run a television show that looks into the reality behind some of the nonsense in the food industry. And they read an article somewhere on page 12 or 13 of a newspaper, tiny article that talked about child slaves in the cocoa industry. Mm -hmm. And these guys were shocked. I mean, they were like, how can this not be front page news? How come not everybody knows about this for a product that definitely in Holland, everybody eats just about every day. So they started investigating, but in that investigation, none of these big chocolate producers wanted to speak to these journalists. So they had a bit of an issue there. So they kept digging into the issue and realized, well, let's just change the system from within. Let's just start our own chocolate company called Tony's Chocolonely. Tony's the international name for Tern, the journalist, and Chocolonely for his lonely battle in the chocolate industry. Right. Um, and uh, Tony's was, uh, was uh, launched 15 years ago with the first fair trade certified chocolate bars on shelf in the Netherlands. A tiny company, but with a huge mission to not only make our own chocolate 100% slavery, but to make all chocolate worldwide 100% slavery. So this is not about us. This is about really working together with the industry, together with the retailers, together with the consumers, together with governments, and together with the cocoa farmers to change that complete industry 
towards a 100% slave-free chocolate worldwide as the norm in the chocolate industry. So that is how we launched and that was in Holland. And then normally when you expand, you would expand to Belgium or Germany or Scandinavia. First country we expanded to was actually the US because we strongly believe that if you want people to notice you, you better make some sound in their backyard. And the home turf of a couple of these big chocolate brands is the US. And we believe that in such a huge country with a large population that consumes a lot of chocolate too, we can actually show that you can make that difference. So it's, um, and then after the US, obviously uh, Europe and then everywhere across the globe. So that has been our story from day one. So there's, there's never really been this moment that we decided now we're going to do things differently. We did things differently from day one just to show that it could be done. We actually never had the intention to be a successful world player in the chocolate market. We just wanted to raise some attention to the issue. Um, and then at a certain point, we really came to, well, we, let's, let's put it like this. In the initial days, you could say that we were aiming at 100% market share in chocolate, which was a bit of a dream, but that would change the system. Now we realize, and that's the last part in our strategy always too, that we better aim for 100% of the markets to start doing what we're doing. So we really want to inspire other organizations, manufacturers, retailers to take their responsibility when it comes to human rights in their value chain. So this is really about changing a system together with the rest of the industry. So when it comes to scalability, right? I mean, Tony's Chocolate only has done an excellent job of it. And now as more and more people become aware of the issues within the cocoa industry, there has been this boom of boutique chocolate companies and chocolate makers who work with local farms. And they're like more of a decentralized social enterprise or maybe just, you know, an entrepreneurial and an enterprise. And they just, they produce chocolate and then perhaps obviously they're not selling it at the same scale as you are, but they are doing it 100% sustainably say. Do you think that your model should be replicated for these smaller companies? Or do you think that ultimately, given your size, there has to be some sort of trade-off between sustainability and scalability? Mm, interesting. couple of questions in one, though. Let me put it like this. I, I applaud any initiative that improves uh, the livelihood of the farmers in Western Africa, any initiative that makes uh, value chains more equally divided, thereby spreading happiness uh, towards everybody. Mm -hmm. I applaud all of them. I would say though our approach is a bit more entrepreneurial. So we really aim to have this chocolate on shelf available for everybody instead of it being a niche or very boutique uh, item. Right. But, but it's great if everybody starts doing this, then, then we're there, right? Is it a, a trade-off between scalability and sustainability? I just simply think there is no other choice than to go for sustainability and sustainable development. And, and maybe you could say social entrepreneurship, but I shy away from the whole term of social entrepreneurship because I simply think that this is how entrepreneurship should look as a whole. And the other entrepreneurs that don't realize that when you're financially successful, you actually have a, a responsibility to, towards the planet and the society around you. Those might be very anti-social entrepreneurs. And maybe we should mark them as that and consider ourselves as mainstream entrepreneurship. Interesting. And let's then talk about the opposite end of that scale, which is the chocolate giants that are in the US, like Nestle and, and Mars and whoever else. I mean, they've gotten away with doing business in a certain way for a very long time like this, right? Until it was that people started talking about it and decided that things should be done differently. So why do you think there have been no consequences up until now? I mean, we've had the Harkin Angle Protocol, which sort of aimed to 
clean up the industry a little bit, but where did that sort of fall flat in, in what it set out to do? I think one, because it's been too voluntary up to now, mm-hmm. right? And it's fine as long as people live up to their uh, voluntary agreements. But if you don't, then it's bogus, right? So I think that's been a core of the problem. It's also been about a lack of awareness in the industry, but also amongst consumers. I wouldn't say big chocolate players aren't taking responsibility, but they definitely haven't been taking their responsibility in the past. And there is change, but is that change coming quick enough? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's good that there's initiatives amongst the bigger uh, chocolate manufacturers as well, but those initiatives aren't going deep enough, aren't going far enough. So now we say it's time we get proper legislation in place in the countries. We get proper due diligence from the organizations that produce goods uh, and make sure that we all live up to uh, not harming any, how do you call it, not crossing any lines when it comes to human rights uh, violations, honestly. Yeah. It's about really making sure that you can prove that you uh, have a product that in the end makes everybody happy in your whole value chain. Yeah. Do you think then that entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs and, and companies such as Tony's Chocolonely are doing perhaps what policy measures and governments have not been able to do up until now? Yes, but it's time we join hands. So right. we need both. We need initiatives from the ground. We need entrepreneurial initiatives to change it. But... It has shown over the last two decades that just having voluntary agreements, non-binding agreements, non-regulatory agreements isn't enough. So we've given the chocolate industry and big firms enough time to change, Mm -hmm. and they haven't in the last two decades, so now it's time for legislation in place, and then we'll happily embrace each and every one who makes that change. And when it comes to the big chocolate companies, if they want to clean up their supply chains and if they want to clean up their act, how effective are accreditations or certifications such as fair trade in informing right. consumers about where the chocolate is coming from and if these brands are actually committed to doing something different than hmm. what they've been doing before? Well, we've been a long-standing partner of uh, Max Havlar Fair Trade Holland, and we've always been fair trade certified, and we're, we're uh, we are strong believers in that certification scheme and other certification schemes. I mean, in the end, many have slightly different angles, but still are are uh, successful. I would say the problem is that many organizations see these certifications as an end point, right? And they mm-hmm. aren't; they're a starting point. In our opinion, I, I often make the comparison with getting your driver's license. Right? Yeah. When you get your driver's license, you're legally allowed to drive, but you're mm-hmm. not really a proper driver yet. Yeah. Same thing with the certification. You could see a certification as an endpoint, but that your, your responsibility doesn't stop there. It starts yeah. there because yeah. there's so much more to do. In our case, we saw that we realized in the early years, and you can see that in the documentary that's available online about Tony's, that being fair trade certified wasn't enough for us to really make sure that there's no cases of illegal child labor in the value chain. So we took it from there to go on responsibility to really have this bean-to-bar connection with the farmers that we work with. So they're great, but they're not enough. I mean, we shouldn't discard them as unuseful, which sometimes people do when you draw this conclusion. Yeah. People say, ah, so they're not good. No, that's yeah. not true. They're good, but they're not good enough. Yeah. And do you think they do enough in informing consumers? Because a lot of times... You know, something that potentially a consumer might say to you is that, oh, you know, Tony's Chocolate Only is too expensive as opposed to an X bar, which is cheaper. And so I will go there. And both of you are marked fair trade. 
you know, so how does a consumer in that scenario make a choice? Like a consumer makes that choice in any other scenario, right? It's really right. about reading up and uh, becoming more aware yourself as a consumer. And that's not easy. Mm. And fair trade uh, does their best, but they can't do everything to educate a consumer either. And I would always, when we talk about the price of our chocolate, I would beg to differ that our chocolate is, is more or much more expensive than other chocolates mm -hmm. because we just have big bulky bars. So per gram, our bars tend to not be that much more expensive. And if they are, and if they are perceived as more expensive, then I would tend to say, but let's stop right here and see why those other bars are cheaper, right? And the only way to have yes. chocolate in that cheap sense is simply by having this illegal forced child labor in the value chain. If we all take our responsibility, and it has shown with, for example, Albert Heijn, the biggest retailer in the Netherlands, that now sources all of their chocolate for their private label chocolate through the same five sourcing principles that we adhere to, their bars didn't become much more expensive than eight or 10 euro cents per bar and the, and within the same economic system of the same margins and gross margins and net margins. So it can easily be done, I would say. But do you think that potentially when it comes to COVID-19 and, and how we're sort of forced to live and work and, and be in these times, do you think there will be this heightened level of awareness amongst consumers that people will be sort of more mindful going forward and make better choices once the virus stabilizes or we have a vaccine or herd immunity magically develops or whatever. You're hitting my sweet spot here because this literally can start a two, three hour conversation with me. Yes. Um, <laughs> I would hope so. Humankind has shown that for change, we need an impressive kick in the behind. Mm. And 10 years ago, I was hoping the financial crisis was a significant kick in the behind, and it has shown it hasn't. And now, in the beginning of the, of the lockdown, in March, April, I was thinking, okay, we can all get really depressed here, and, and, and rightly so for many people who've lost their jobs, etc. Don't let me downplay that seriousness of that situation at all. But we can also embrace it as a catalyst moment for change. Mm. and really making sure that we set up an economic system and a value chain that's different than how we have handled it for the last decade. And I'm still hopeful that we can do that. Yet sometimes I also look at situations and think like, how can we bounce back to where we were before that, right? I heard that the CO2 emissions in China are even higher now at the moment than before COVID oh. even already. And I'm thinking, oosh, didn't we see those blue skies over the cities mm. for the first time in decades, uh, etc. And I think... But I'm not a professor in that field, but I think hopefully people will reconsider their relationship with food, which in the end, in a sense, was the beginning of this whole pandemic, right? It had to do with the food market. Mm, that's such a good point, yeah. So our relationship as human beings with food, with nature, and with the society around us. The good thing what I saw in the early months of COVID was the impressive societal, uh, lovely, tiny sparks of joy that I saw of people bringing groceries to the, the elderly next door neighbor who weren't able to go out. And I, I love that situation. It really brought back a bit of cohesion in, in society yeah. left and right. And I hope we can cling on to that. I definitely think that our work will change. I think how we work will change, how we travel will change. I think where we live will change, right? We always, we've shown that, well, again, I haven't been to the office more than twice in the last six months. Maybe I can move to the other side of Holland. I don't need to live to, uh, to this big city that, anymore, right? I can yeah. go to the office once a month, maybe. So things will definitely change. And, and I just hope we can all embrace this moment and see it as a moment for change for good. 
right? And that we really make use of this moment and change for good. I, I am hopeful, I gotta tell you. Yeah. Okay, well, first of all, when I was in 2008, 2009, I was too young, so obviously it didn't affect me. You know, like I feel that the, the, the pandemic in a way has been some sort of like a reset button where everybody is forced to reconsider. Yes, but unfortunately it, it has hit and will hit uh, um, poorer societies more yes, absolutely. Than, again than the rich societies, even mm. though physically it hit you, might hit you in the same way. But if, mm. if I read that in the US there's 150,000 respirators for 250 million people, and in the whole continent of Africa there are 4,500 respirators, just to give a little example of the bias mm. there. And the fact that hundreds of millions of people across the globe have lost their jobs, yeah. lost their incomes, whilst the five richest billionaires in the world have only increased their wealth with ridiculous amounts, I know. right? Jeff uh, Bezos, like, I will yeah, name you. <laughs> exactly. And, and uh, I'm like, can't we, somebody posted a meme the other day that said, let's just from the moment you become a billionaire, throw a big party, and after that, cap it with 100% tax. I mean, who needs more than a billion euros, uh, US dollars in the, at all, yeah. right? And don't get me wrong, I'm a commercial entrepreneur, but that is just, that reaches a level of inequality that is just incomprehensible to me. And I think that's a really interesting point that you've hit there, because a lot of times, you know, what happens is, or at least some of the conversations that are taking place right now, is that being a socially conscious society or, or sort of choosing it to vote for change with your wallet necessarily means that there will be foregoing some of the scale or some of like the quote-unquote largeness in whatever it is that you want to achieve. But the thing is that you don't have to be and I think you certainly should not aspire to be someone like Jeff Bezos or a billionaire in order to be successful. So do you think that potentially I our totally definition agree. of growth might change? Yes, we should change our definition of success. We should change right. our definition of profit. We should change our definition of wealth, right? Mm. So that is the, the core of the issue that we talk within a, a mindset that maybe we just need to break the mindset and let go of that. And for yeah. example, also the idea that doing good in the sense of sustainability or sustainable development and doing good in the sense of financial success are two ends of one spectrum. Mm. I think once we let go of the idea that that's a paradox yeah. and we, we see that it can be one and the same, and I think us as Tonys in a tiny, tiny example show that it can be that way. It's not one or the other. It's the mm. two things together that have made us successful how we are in both fields, right? We're financially successful, but financial success for us isn't a goal. For some reason, over the last two, three, four decades, no, generations, I would say, financial success in itself has become such a huge goal. Whilst you can't take your money to your grave, right? I mean, in the end, financial success should be a means towards a goal. Mm. So don't get me wrong. It's an essential means towards a goal for us. We're not a, a philanthropic institution. We're not right. a social enterprise. We're, we're a commercial company that wants to change the system from within. But financial success for us is a means towards 100% slave-free chocolate worldwide. Mm. Now, I think you may have like come across the recent news about Oatly, right, where they've given off a $200 million stake to Blackstone. 
which, you know, has hands and legs and creepy crawly, you know, tentacles and all of these shady businesses. But Oatly, of course, is a very, you know, it's, it's an alternative plant milk sustainable company and it started off by doing things differently and now a lot of people are quite upset with Oatly because they've sold off these stakes to this company. So, so what is your take on that? I think it's a bit too soon to give a proper judgment on this mm-hmm. yet, but I was incidentally talking about this this morning with a couple of colleagues of mine. Mm. You could go a couple of ways here. One would be indeed say, hmm, you sold your soul to the devil. Mm-hmm. But let me draw a little analogy for you here. There's a successful Dutch company that's called the Vegetarian Butcher mm-hmm. that makes uh, uh, vegetarian alternatives to meat. And specifically alternatives to meat. That's why they call themselves the butcher and they make uh, chicken and they make hamburgers, but right. it's all vegetarian. Yeah. They sold to Unilever and the world was too small, right? People were exploding. So you sold yourself to the devil, to big corporate. Okay, that's one viewpoint you can have. The other one you could have is this brought them towards distribution in more than 100 countries to really bringing this alternative to so many more mouths in the world than they could beforehand. Mm. So this is also a question I sometimes get. So where do you see the future of Tony's? I don't know where the future leads, but a scenario could be that we would be bought by one of the bigger chocolate companies, for example. I could only see that as a success if that would mean coming towards or reaching our mission sooner mm. than we would have without being sold. So if that would change the whole world of chocolate in itself by being sold off, and that would be a Kickstarter, then it's good. That's fine to me. Yes, you sold your soul to the devil, but you changed the devil maybe into a lovely person. So that could be a take that you have on that too. Mm. Yeah. Potentially, it's, it, yeah. indeed, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. But you never have those guarantees, but you could set those things in place, right? We will only do this if you change your value chain model or your business model within a couple of years, whatever. I mean, I think, uh, for example, Ben & Jerry's uh, also mm. to Unilever brought that change in into that company. I was part of Innocent Drinks in the early days, which was sold to Coca-Cola, which right. really brought a change within the company. So you could go both ways. But for mm. now, I would tend to give only a bit of benefit of the doubt for now until I've read up more about uh, yeah. the implications. Yeah. I think one of the concerns that perhaps people might have is that, you know, just how quickly some companies and brands jump to greenwash, you know, or pinkwash or socially wash whatever their product or service is when it comes to, you know, appealing to consumers and their growing levels of awareness. Because, of course, while it may be good for a company such as Oatly to reach out to more people, you know, when this company, when their parent, well, Blackstone is doing other things in the Amazon, for instance, they can use investing in Oatly as this justification or be like, oh, we're trying to be somewhat sustainable, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that's, that's one of the concerns that people may have. And I completely understand those concerns. Yet we can also smother any tiny initiative that could lead to change by immediately calling it purpose washing or greenwashing, mm. right? I totally agree that there is such a thing as purpose washing or greenwashing. If there's no change at all, if there's no change at the horizon, if there's no perspective of change at the horizon. But we can also smother any initiative, and that also often happens, 
instead of giving people benefit of the doubt and giving them the opportunity to change from within. Because this could also mean that Blackstone opens their eyes and does more proper investments and de-invests in, say, fossil fuels, for example. And I think the other thing that we have to talk about, and I see that you're perhaps wearing that T-shirt as well. I can't really tell. I can just see Lives Matter. But yeah, I think we do have to talk about Black Lives Matter. And I think that is also perfect. The segue, what we were just discussing is a neat little segue into how consumers are expecting and all people are expecting more of companies and in terms of what they're doing for Black people and diversity within their larger companies. So, so what is your take on that? And, and what do you think this movement and, and specifically this happening during the time of the pandemic and all means for the future of companies? How do you think they're going to introspect? Let's just hope they introspect, mm-hmm. period, right? And because everybody has a responsibility there. And I think it's been a, a very good eye-opener for many companies, many organizations, many entrepreneurs, also for us really immediately launched a task force within our company to look at every aspect of the company from the moment we start recruiting people up to the the board of directors etc where we have a role to play because we've we've noticed indeed that for example the diversity in in specifically our our higher board isn't isn't high enough so we need to focus on that and we've also uh, supported initiatives in uh, say the u.s and we also last week had an initiative to make sure that people are going to vote in the U.S., which is important. Yeah. We educate ourselves with sessions in the morning with the, uh, the Black Archives Institute in Amsterdam mm-hmm. that has given us uh, information about the history of Holland, how we need to look at uh, certain historical parts of the growth of uh, the Netherlands as well. That has been very good and very eye-opening for us as an organization as well. So we're working on that strongly. I think... I mean, if, if you're a company like ours that is so focused on creating equality and value chains, we need to really have a proper perspective on equality from all sides, right? And it's important not to have these eye shutters on thinking we're doing right, whilst maybe at the same time we should be doing things in a different way. But these, for us, is also a learning, a learning moment and learning curve, an early, early moment in a learning curve too. Yeah. What initiatives or policies do you think can help all of these you know, movements and all of these important conversations that we're having during this time to actually maintain the momentum going forward? I would say by maintaining this open discussion, right? By really, really being open for a proper discussion about equality, about equal rights, about entrepreneurship, about social entrepreneurship, about how things look, how things should look, and not go into, as I just touched upon for a second, immediately into cancellation or, you know, those kind of things, because that doesn't open the discussion. We need to learn from each other, appreciate each other's values, appreciate each other's ideas, and take it from there, but have this open discussion. I don't, I don't like, sometimes it's happening that everybody's made to shut up, right? I, that doesn't work, I think. Yeah. We need to talk right. about things. We need to talk about things and appreciate and also celebrate diversity, celebrate differences, but make sure that we all have equal opportunities and equal rights. Yeah. And I want to take a moment as well to discuss Tony's chocolate design and the chocolate bar, because I think it's absolutely brilliant. And and if you could just sort of walk us through some of the reasoning behind why it is the way it is, because I think that's such an important way in which to communicate what your brand is about that actually moves away from social media statements which is a very popular right. way to get your idea across now. Yeah. 
Now, for example, as I touched upon very shortly in the beginning in the introduction, we don't do any form of paid media. So mm. we've never done it. There's never been any form of uh, advertising uh, that we know of that was paid uh, by Tony's at least. So we had to be creative from moment one. And uh, sometimes you can be creative if you're an outsider coming in. And we had no clue about uh, chocolate culture. We had no clue about uh, how things worked in the chocolate industry, which gives you a very fresh new perspective on things. So, for example, uh, even though I know we're, we're on audio in this podcast, we have a very colorful range of bars. So we call it a rainbow of bars almost. And once we are on shelf somewhere, we stand out because it's so simple. It's a very matte paper, big typography, big logo. That is simple, simply because our logo was literally ripped out of paper in 15 minutes and that became our font, our wow. logo itself. We changed our bars. I mean, chocolate bars for the last decades or maybe even centuries have always had this very boring, almost Excel spreadsheet square <laughs> shape, right? Except uh, for Toblerone. <laughs> But anyway, so we take and we made our bars unequally divided because our bars show the unequal. Well, the, it tells the story of the unequally divided chocolate industry in its purest form. Our bars actually become a discussion piece. Mm -hmm. If you open a bar of Tony's at a dinner table or wherever you tend to open up a bar of chocolate, and somebody next to you doesn't know the story of Tony's, doesn't know the story of the cocoa industry, doesn't know the story of the illegal child labor in that industry, you're going to have to explain that because they will ask you, why is that bar so annoyingly unequally divided? Mm. So that for us was a, a way for creating brand ambassadors. People tell the story for us, right? So that's the idea of the unequally divided chocolate bar. What very few people know those that we managed to hide the map of western africa in our chocolate bar showing the origin of the cocoa beans that we work with and the, and the strong farmers that we work with in ghana and ivory coast so if people don't know it go and look it up either in the if you can get your hands on a bar of tony's or look it up online yeah, but it's the story of the shape of the bars okay. and and the fact that we, we like big chunky chocolate bars and that mm. was in the early days because the very first couple of thousand bars that we had made we need to have them made really quickly. And for people that know this story, go and look at the documentary Tony's online. You can find it online everywhere. This tells you about the early days. We have chocolate made in a couple of days. Why? Because we wanted to launch this brand right at the same time that the story of uh, Willy Wonka and uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory came out in the remake. Mm, right. so, and the chocolate manufacturer could only make it in this specific mold, in this specific shape. So that was always the big chunky bars. Afterwards, we change it into the unequally divided bars. Mm -hmm. We like big and chunky bars. So that's the reasoning behind our chocolate and the reasoning behind the colorful range of bars that we have as well. And the ingredients, I mean, we always want to come up with surprising bars that haven't been launched by other manufacturers. Why? Because it's become a newsworthy thing, right? I mean, some very mainstream news media report when we launch a new bar that we have no idea why because there's more important stuff going on mm. in the world but people like to hear about a new bar of tons being launched so we started this product development cycle of constantly coming up with new bars and new recipes that no other manufacturer was doing and now all of them are doing it but this was why people were always surprised and eagerly surprised about new bars and therefore we could also inform them about new things in the cocoa industry at the same time
Yeah, and I just want to add to the listeners because they obviously cannot see you joyfully waving the chocolate bar around. Funzo <laughs> actually picked up the chocolate bar and he waved it around shamelessly in my face, knowing that I do not have access to it. Now I'm going to make. Now I'm going to. For the people who hear this, they will not see this either. But I have a huge <laughs> stack of bars on my hands now. It is a huge stack of bars. It actually looks like he's, he's carrying the library books home, but no, they're chocolate bars. And you waved it around, and and then I'm not happy. <laughs> I don't think that's very fair for a company that's trying to be fair. But ah, fine. No, it's unequally divided, isn't it? We always say. Yes, I'm getting the smallest piece of this bar. <laughs> so let's talk about why I don't have access to your bar, and I am in India at the moment. And and what are your future plans to sort of reach out and spread more chocolate joy? Hold on, you forgot one tiny but yet essential word in that sentence. You don't have access to our bars. Yet, yet. <laughs> it's a question. It's a question of time, because again, we launched 15 years ago. But up till I would say five years ago, I would guess we were mm. only available in Holland, and now we're available in Holland, Scandinavia, Germany, France, UK, US, uh, Belgium, Taiwan. I know we launched in New Zealand a couple of weeks ago, Mexico. So we're wow. we're starting to become available everywhere, and it's growing like crazy. Mm. But it's so I would say it's merely a question of time before we're available in a store anywhere near you for any of the listeners across the globe. Yeah, and I think I think I'm really excited for that. I think everybody who's listening in should be excited for that if they don't have access to your bars yet. And I think my final question for the day would be. how can we whoever we are you know whether we're consumers or activists or you know entrepreneurs how can we together pitch in for a slave free chocolate future there's many things you can do but i think the most important thing for anybody to realize that you're never too small to make a difference so the tiniest thing you can do is simply sign up to tonyschocolonely.com/petition and sign our petition which we want to gather a million signatures to make sure that there's more pressure on governments and on organizations mm-hmm. to do their part to take their responsibility become a serious friend of tony's by signing up to our list of serious friends where we can inform you constantly we can ask you to join this movement that we're creating that would be the easiest thing to do next to obviously perhaps buying our bars but i, I don't really i never want to push people to buy our chocolate mm-hmm. for me it's simply about becoming aware that your purchasing decisions each and every day are a vote for the world you want to live in right so right. you need to make sure that you take your responsibility whether it comes to your shopping basket or the way you do business as an entrepreneur or the way you set legislation in place when you're a politician everybody can play their part yeah. however small but every can everybody can make that change not from the next elections but from today when you go to a supermarket or today when you make a business decision Yeah and and I think that's a great way to make a start and I think already we do find that consumers are actually much more informed than perhaps they were when when you guys started right a Definitely. lot of people care a lot of people care that the brands that they love and buy from care as well so I think I think that's great advice Yeah yeah thanks <laughs> Thank you so much it's been such a pleasure speaking to you I've you. had a great time, except for the time when you waved the chocolate bar. I'm, 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 I'm bitter about it. I did not find that sweet. And I obviously have to work on get, my puns. Get, get me over to conferences where you're around, and I'll bring you. I'll bring you a whole stack of chocolate. Yeah, I'll just be like, yes. Oh my god. 
Now, is it true? I actually did see a talk that you had given. Is it true that people can just take as many chocolate bars as they want from your office? It's actually, it's written in our one page uh, contract that we have. Yeah, you get to take as much chocolate home as you can physically carry each and every day. And now that we're working from home, that whole stack that I was just waving around, yeah. this was, was one was sent to me this weekend by Tony. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have any workout tips to accompany all of this mass chocolate eating? You know, in the same contract that I just spoke about, we also have a handbook and we get free running shoes every year to make sure that we run off that access chocolate too. <laughs> Well, that's great. I think those are great initiatives. Definitely something other companies should also look to if they are selling something that you can eat and drink that perhaps may or may not make you a little bit unhealthy. It makes you happy <laughs> as hell though. It makes us happy. That's true. Thank you so much once again. It's been an absolute pleasure Thank you for having me. to you. description. If you have any feedback, suggestions, requests, or simply just want to get in touch with us, then please do head over to our podcast website. We are available to flag and say hi to via Facebook, Instagram, or email.